0: Welcome back to The Law. I'm DK Williams and this is episode 37. We're going to talk about the United States Supreme Court case of McDonald versus the city of Chicago. came out in 2010. But before we get into this major Second Amendment case... I want to thank Mike Shelton and the Flatirons chapter of Liberty on the Rocks here in Colorado for the opportunity to speak with them this week and talk about some of the worst Supreme Court cases in history. You all know some of the ones we've discussed. Wickard v. Filburn, of course, we talked about that in Episode 5, Kilo v. New London, Episode 20. We discussed this judicially created doctrine of qualified immunity, which we discussed on Episode 4 of The Law. And we went over several other important Supreme Court precedents. It was a great discussion. A lot of fun. Great time. Great questions. Comments from the, uh, the people attending. The video of it should be up soon. And I'll link to it on the podcast uh, Facebook page, which is The Law with DK Williams. Um, if you haven't already liked that page on Facebook, great if you would. Or to quote David Wooderson, be a lot cooler if you did. I'll also tweet the link, and you can uh, follow me on Twitter at Blue Carp. I love public appearances. If you know a group that might be interested, contact me. It's a lot of fun. As always, The Law with DK Williams is brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network. Always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. And if you'd like to help keep the podcast going, you can donate at paypal.me slash thelawdkwilliams. That link will be in the show notes. Wherever you happen to be listening... Like, comment, subscribe, share it if you're so inclined. We hope you are. So who are these people? We've gotten McDonald versus the city of Chicago. Now, this is a 2010 Supreme Court case just two years after D.C. versus Heller was decided, which we discussed in episode 36 just last week. In Heller, the Supreme Court ruled that the Second Amendment is an individual right, not a collective one, It's not tied to membership in a militia because everyone is in the militia. So that was in 2008. Why didn't Heller decide that issue once and for all? What was left with McDonald versus Chicago? Well, because as we've talked about before, the Bill of Rights, which is... More accurately, the Bill of Restrictions, because it doesn't grant any rights, it restricts government's authority, the Bill of Restriction only applies to the federal government. Unless that particular right or restriction, more accurately, on the government has been incorporated to apply to the states via the 14th Amendment. Heller only applied to D.C., which is the federal government. This case, McDonald v. Chicago, wanted to apply the Second Amendment restriction on government that government shall not infringe upon the right to keep and bear arms to the states. And in this context, states also means it's subdivisions like cities and counties. So this is straight from the opinion written by Alito. It was a 5-4 decision, and we'll get into the breakdown of it. But Otis McDonald is a named plaintiff. There are other plaintiffs as well, but McDonald's first, so he gets his name on it. Otis McDonald, Adam Orlov, Colleen Lawson, and David Lawson are the Chicago petitioners. Chicago residents who would like to keep handguns in their homes for self-defense, but are prohibited from doing so by Chicago's firearms laws. A city ordinance provides that no person shall possess... Any firearm, unless such person is the holder of a valid registration certificate for such firearm, the code then prohibits registration of most handguns, as the Supreme Court says, thus effectively banning handgun possession by almost all private citizens who reside in the city. Like Chicago, Oak Park, which is another named defendant, City of Oak Park, makes it, quote, unlawful for any person to possess any firearm, a term that includes pistols, revolvers, guns, and small arms, commonly known as handguns. So these plaintiffs, you got the Chicago plaintiff suit for application of the Second Amendment and DC v. Heller to the states, and then you had a separate lawsuit filed by the folks that lived in the city of Oak Park, but they're all in Illinois. Those two cases were consolidated, and they eventually worked their way up to the Supreme Court. They want Heller to apply to the states, the Second Amendment, and the restriction on government infringing upon the right to keep and bear arms, because there's no no doubt that Heller, if it applies to the states, these ordinances are in violation of the Second Amendment. Chicago and Oak Park don't bother to argue otherwise. They just argue that the Second Amendment should not be incorporated to the states via the 14th Amendment, and therefore they can infringe upon the right to keep and bear arms so it was five to four in favor of incorporation so the second amendment does apply to states the plaintiffs won and those laws banning firearms are thrown out five four this is the same vote same number vote as the supreme court had in dc v heller just two years ago the only difference was that sotomayor had replaced suitor and heller Suter voted against the second amendment and sotomayor kept that vote in the same place in mcdonald so he had one person switch on the supreme court but the vote was stayed the same five to four and think it's something to note when a progressive hero like Sotomayor, whom I like on many civil rights issues, replaces a Republican nominee, David Souter, and they're both against the Second Amendment. Funny how that happens. And when I go to a sporting event, I like to look at the team roster, see how long the players have been there, how long they've been on that team, where they went to school, their height and weight and the like. I kind of like to do the same thing with the Supreme Court. Which president appointed them, how long they've been on the bench, and where they went to law school. Don't really care so much about their height and weight. So Samuel Alito wrote this opinion. He was appointed by W in 2006 and went to Yale Law School. He was joined by Antonin Scalia. who was appointed in 1986 by Reagan, went to Harvard Law School. Anthony Kennedy, also in the majority, appointed by Reagan in 1988. He since retired in 2018. Scalia, of course, died in 2016. Clarence Thomas is the fifth justice in the majority. He was appointed by H.W. Bush in 1991. Now, he went to Yale Law School. Do you see a pattern? Now, Clarence Thomas disagreed on the incorporation issue, how they got to the application of the second amendment to the states he doesn't agree with this notion that the due process part of the 14th amendment applies he would use the privilege and immunities clause same result different road to get there He agreed the Second Amendment was incorporated. He just uses the different, and in my opinion, a more accurate analysis to get there. He was the fourth one. All right, Chief Justice John Roberts, the fifth justice in the majority, appointed by W. Bush in 2005, also Harvard Law. So this pattern is you got this legal elite that all went to Ivy League law schools, which, as you know, I like to point out every time we talk about one of these. It used to not be that way. So the four dissenters, one of them was John Paul Stevens. He wrote a dissent, and note, he was nominated by a Republican, Gerald Ford, In 1975, he went to Northwestern Law School, not the Ivy League, still an elite private school. Stephen Breyer also wrote a dissent. He was appointed by Clinton in 94, Harvard Law. Breyer's dissent was joined by RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was appointed by Clinton in 93, Columbia Law School, Ivy League. And Sonia Sotomayor, appointed by Obama in 2009, went to Yale Law School. Of course, she's the one that replaced Souter, the only one that's different from the makeup of the Supreme Court from Heller to McDonald. Supreme Court will frequently kind of sum up their decision at the very beginning, and then they'll get into their analysis and and how they got there. Alito sums it all up. I'm going to quote, two years ago in District of Columbia versus Heller, we held that the Second Amendment protects the right to keep and bear arms for the purpose of self-defense. And we struck down a District of Columbia law that banned the possessions of handguns in the home. The city of Chicago and the village of Oak Park, a Chicago suburb, have laws that are similar to the District of Columbia's. But Chicago and Oak Park argue that their laws are constitutional because the Second Amendment has no application to the states. We have previously held that most of the provisions of the Bill of Rights, that's the Supreme Court, I think they should call it the Bill of Restrictions, most of those provisions apply with full force to both the federal government and the states. Applying the standard that is well established in our case law, we hold that the Second Amendment right is fully applicable to the states. There you go. That's the sum of the whole thing. How we get there, though, you'll see that while it's a Second Amendment case and it does deal with the right to keep and bear arms, it really deals more with the 14th Amendment and what that means and how the Bill of Rights slash restrictions... Have been selectively applied to the states. Almost all of them have been now. Some of them haven't come up, some of them haven't been applied. But that process and how the Supreme Court decides which one shall be incorporated, and the answer is at this point, they all should be, but they haven't actually said that. That's just been the practical application mostly. Alito and the majority, they didn't get into the depths of their opinion. Now, the court mentioned some statistics that the parties both bandied about. They both argue about the significance of the crime rates, the handgun murder rate, since the gun ban and others. So they talk about that. The parties talk about it. But stats, and this is very important to me, and I think it makes perfect sense. If you don't think so, let me know. Holler at me. Statistics like murder rates in the city of Chicago before and after this law are passed are irrelevant to a constitutional discussion of what is a protected right and what authority the government has or does not have to infringe upon that right. Stats are great to discuss when you're talking about a policy argument. Let's hear the stats. That's where it's legit. Policy arguments are great. Stats are great for policy arguments, not for constitutional ones. Far too many people don't get that. Because if the constitution says, government can't do X, whatever it is, and I'm a judge bound by that constitutional restriction, then you come in and argue that if you let me do X, good things are gonna happen. That argument is a policy argument and it's meaningless. The restriction on the government is X. Government cannot do X. I don't want to hear about why you should be able to do X. You cannot do X. That argument is moot. It is irrelevant. It is absolutely and completely pointless. The standard has been set. There might be a way to change the standard, but arguing the standard should not be enforced is not the same thing as arguing that the standard should be changed. And the process for changing the constitutional standard is to amend the Constitution not to make arguments to the Supreme Court or any other judge. Constitution has been amended numerous times. It works. It's hard to do. It's difficult. That's the point. It's supposed to be difficult to do. The Supreme Court isn't supposed to just decide that something is good policy and that therefore the Constitution should be changed by the Supreme Court. So while the Supreme Court reached the correct ruling here, I wish they hadn't even mentioned these policy arguments and the statistics to back them up. The stats can show guns are either good or bad, depending on the argument and how you're using them, right? Stats can show almost anything, but they're irrelevant to a constitutional argument, to a constitutional analysis. I'll quote another part of the opinion that describes the name plaintiff Otis McDonald because it personalizes him, and I think that's important to do. Alita leader wrote, several of the Chicago petitioners have been the targets of threats and violence. For instance, Otis McDonald, who was in his late 70s, lives in a high-crime neighborhood. He's a community activist involved with alternative policing strategies, and his efforts to improve his neighborhood have subjected him to violent threats from drug dealers. And there's another one. Colleen Lawson is a Chicago resident whose home has been targeted by burglars. In Ms. Lawson's judgment, possessing a handgun in Chicago would decrease her chances of suffering in serious Injury or death, should she ever be threatened again in her home? The court goes on, sets up the issue, starts the analysis. Alito writes, After our decision in Heller, the Chicago petitioners and two groups file suit against the city in the United States District Court for the Northern District of Illinois, Chicago. They sought a declaration that the handgun ban and several related Chicago ordinances violate the Second and Fourteenth Amendments to the United States Constitution. Because remember, Bill of Restrictions, Bill of Rights, only applied to the federal government when it was passed. Nobody disputes that. At the time, states were independent countries, independent sovereigns, who were concerned with giving up any sovereignty to the new federal government. They weren't concerned with restricting themselves in their own countries, the country of New York, Virginia, North Carolina, Rhode Island, etc. They were concerned with creating this new entity that might take away their sovereignty. So the Bill of Restrictions limited the newly created federal government. And the body of the Constitution was supposed to limit the powers of that federal government. Article 1, Section 8, a strict list of things the federal government can do and only those things. If it's not on the list, the federal government does not have the legitimate authority to do it. Now, the concept of limited and enumerated powers still had some force behind it until 1942, when the Supreme Court tossed out those constitutional limits in Wickard v. Filburn, which we discussed in Episode 5. And that's where the Supreme Court said that the legitimate congressional power to regulate commerce among the states also gave Congress the power to regulate activity that was neither interstate nor commerce I kid you not, we've talked about this. It's 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 complete usurpation of state power by the federal government. So that opened the door for Congress to regulate almost anything and it the entire concept of federalism, which defined the separation of the federal and state powers. So the Bill of Rights did not apply to the states. That's where I'm going with this. When the 14th Amendment was passed after the Civil War, and we'll get into the language in the court's analysis of the 14th Amendment, the Supreme Court started discussing the application of the Bill of Restrictions to the state, should the states be forced to abide by those same restrictions, listed in the first eight amendments to the Constitution. They didn't do it all at once. They didn't say, yes, the entire Bill of Restrictions Rights applies to the states. They didn't do it that way. They did it piecemeal. And the Second Amendment is one of the last ones that they've dealt with and the last ones they have incorporated to the states. And since the Supreme Court had never incorporated the Second Amendment to the states prior to McDonald in 2010, the District Court and the Seventh Circuit felt that they couldn't do it. It's not their place. Alito for the Court writes, the Seventh Circuit observed that it was obligated to follow Supreme Court precedents that have direct application, and it declined to predict how the Second Amendment would fare under the court's modern selective incorporation approach. Selective incorporation is what we just talked about. That's how the Supreme Court deals with each government prohibition listed in the Bill of Rights one at a time or selectively and decides if they're going to apply that government restriction originally meant for the feds to the states as well. Court says, Chicago and Oak Park, the municipal respondents, the government, maintain that a right set out In the Bill of Rights, restrictions, applies to the states only if that right is an indispensable attribute of any civilized legal system. That's in their brief. If it is possible to imagine a civilized country that does not recognize the right, the municipal respondents tell us, the governments, then that right is not protected by due process. And due process is the hook in the 14th Amendment, which the Supreme Court has said makes it apply to the states. This is when the Supreme Court gets into the history of the Bill of Rights, restrictions, and the 14th Amendment. Alito lays it out for the court. He says, the Bill of Rights, including the Second Amendment, originally applied only to the federal government, like we were talking about. The constitutional amendments adopted in the aftermath of the Civil War, fundamentally altered our country's federal system. The provision at issue in this case, Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, provides, among other things, that a state may not abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States or deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. So again, Amendments 1 through 8 specifically apply to the feds only. Federal government cannot do certain things. The 14th Amendment Specifically does apply to the states. Among other things, it directly overturns the Dred Scott decision, which said former slaves were not citizens. So, the Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, and there's more to it after Section 1, but that's the the important part for this case, says all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof, and this is where we get the birthright citizenship thing. But that's not, what this, that's not what we're discussing today. All those people are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. Because in the Dred Scott case, Justice Taney made a distinction about being a citizen of the U.S. and being a citizen of their state and the different things that that meant. 14th Amendment says they're the same thing. 14th Amendment says no state, again, this applies to the states, not to Congress, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. There's three magic phrases there, legal phrases that people use. Privileges or immunities, due process, and equal protection. So no state can enforce a law that abridges the privileges and immunities of citizens of the U.S., and the argument goes that citizens of the United States, of the federal government, are protected by the Bill of Restrictions rights, and states can't deny those rights protected by the Constitution. Very simply, it would have been better, I think, if, if they had just said that. If they had just said, now we're going to apply the Bill of Rights restrictions to all of the states. But they didn't do that. It's much more convoluted how they deal with this. They've dealt with them one at a time, this selective incorporation thing. Alito and the majority in the Supreme Court in this McDonald case go through some history of the 14th Amendment. And four years after the 14th Amendment was adopted, the Supreme Court heard what is called the Slaughterhouse Cases. That was a five to four majority in that case. And it's basically agreed now by most everybody Most legal scholars, no matter what their basic philosophies are, is that they screwed the pooch on this one. The four person minority in the slaughterhouse cases was right, but it's never been overturned because of this concept of precedent and stare decisis. So these cases dealt with the application of the privileges and immunities provision of the 14th Amendment. So these cases, I'm going to quote Alito again, involved challenges to a Louisiana law permitting the creation of a state sanctioned monopoly on the butchering of animals within the city of New Orleans. Justice Samuel Miller's opinion for the court concluded that. The privileges or immunities clause protects only those rights which owe their existence to the federal government, its national character, its constitution, or its laws. Several things wrong with that, but rights—no right—owes its existence to the federal government to begin with. We have natural rights that the federal government has been told they cannot infringe upon or violate. The court held that other fundamental rights, rights that predated the creation of the federal government, and that the state governments were created to establish and secure, were not protected by the privileges and immunities Clause. We're getting in the weeds, I know, and that's the problem. It shouldn't be this difficult. So Alito writing in the McDonald case says, Finding no constitutional protection against state intrusion of the kind envisioned by the Louisiana statute, this is in those slaughterhouse cases, historically important, the court and upheld that statute. Four justices dissented. Justice Field, joined by Chief Justice Chase and Justices Swain and Bradley, criticized the majority for reducing the 14th Amendment's Privileges or Immunities Clause to, quote, a vain and idle enactment, which accomplished nothing and most unnecessarily excited Congress and the people on its passage. So they're basically saying they're ignoring it. They're, it obviously is supposed to do something, but the majority opinion is making it do nothing. So that's why they criticized it, and they're right. One of the justices dissenting Bradley would have construed the Privileges or Immunities Clause to include those rights enumerated in the Constitution. That's a good start. Dissenting Justice Swain described the majority's narrow reading of the Privileges and Immunities Clause as turning what was meant for bread into a stone Nice metaphor for you. Many Supreme Court justices wish they had been poets, I'm sure. Alito goes on. Today, many legal scholars dispute the correctness of the narrow slaughterhouse interpretation, including Clarence Thomas, who he's citing here in a dissent. And another quote. Scholars of the 14th Amendment agree that the clause does not mean what the court said it meant. In 1873, the slaughterhouse cases. But the court here, in my opinion, in McDonald's and in Justice Thomas's opinion, in his concurrence, because he agreed with the outcome, Second Amendment does apply to the states, he just got there a different way. So I'm with Justin Thomas. The court itself is overly deferential to precedent. Thomas is not in this case. Now, of course, precedent and stare decisis, which is just sticking with prior cases decided so we can have some stability in the law, even if they're wrong. Or you think they might be wrong. That's not enough reason to vote to overturn it. That's the idea. It's a big deal today. Progressives are downright aghast at the possibility that with the relatively more conservative makeup of the Supreme Court, Roe v. Wade might be overturned. That concern for precedent is selective. Call them out on that. Get them to acknowledge they want certain precedent maintained, but not other precedents. So they want Roe v. Wade maintained, and they talk about precedent and stare decisis. But then you say, but you don't apply that same respect or consideration to, say, Citizens United, do you, and make them go, maybe they can stop with the Outrage Act and be more honest about it. Some more Supreme Court history and precedent, Alito goes on. Three years after the decision in these slaughterhouse cases, the Supreme Court decided Cruxshank, the first of the three 19th century cases in which the Seventh Circuit relied. The Second Amendment, the court said in that Cruxshank case, declares that it shall not be infringed, the Second Amendment, But this means no more than it shall not be infringed by Congress. That was the Cruikshank case, the Supreme Court back then, so they weren't applying it to the states. He continues, in petitioners' view, that's the plaintiffs who want to have their guns, the privileges or immunities clause protects all the rights set out in the Bill of Rights, restrictions, as well as some others. Alito goes on and says, we see no need to reconsider that interpretation here, so we're not going to overturn Slaughterhouse-Cruikshank and these other ones. He says, For many decades, the question of the rights protected by the 14th Amendment against state infringement has been analyzed under the Due Process Clause of that amendment and not under the Privileges or Immunities Clause. We therefore decline to disturb the slaughterhouse holding. As Thomas notes in his concurrence, and I agree with him, it makes a lot more sense to use the Privileges and Immunities Clause. And not the due process clause. Thomas is correct again. Just different roads to get to the same place, but I think it is important if you use the right road. And since these old cases, Slaughterhouse, Crookshank, say that privileges or immunities don't apply to gun possession and many other rights, the Supreme Court has done all kind of gymnastics—legal gymnastics, verbal gymnastics—to say that. Well, okay, we said it doesn't apply under privileges or immunities, but you know what? We didn't say we didn't deal with the due process clause, and they apply under the due process clause of the Fourteenth Amendment. So this allows them not to overturn the Slaughterhouse. Cases and the crux chain case is another one. Alito continues. At the same time, however, this court's decisions in Cruikshank, Presser and Miller, some other cases, do not preclude us from considering whether the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment makes the Second Amendment right binding on the states. So, you know, that's what I'm saying. It makes more sense for privileges and immunities. They've already screwed that up, so now they're going to use the Due Process Clause instead to make it apply. Alito notes these other cases all preceded, they came before the era in which this court, Supreme Court, began the process of selective incorporation. Under the Due Process Clause, and we have never previously addressed the question whether the right to keep and bear arms applies to the states under that theory. Under due process, they should just overrule Kruchenyk, overrule slaughterhouse cases as it regards to the application of the privileges or immunities clause, because it makes more sense than due process. Due process just talks about how they're going to take away your life, liberty, or property. They can't do it without giving you due process. It, it's completely inapplicable to whether or not you have or whether or not your right to keep and bear arms can be infringed upon by the state. But that's what they've done. Alito then surveys the history of the Supreme Court using this due process clause to selectively enforce or selectively incorporate the Bill of Restrictions, Bill of Rights to the states. Now, some of the formulations that these prior Supreme Court decisions came up with to decide if a particular government restriction should apply to the states are frankly absurd. For example, and Alito goes over these, he says a long time ago, the court explained that the only rights protected against state infringement by the due process clause of the 14th Amendment were those rights of such a nature that they are included in the conception of due process of law. What? That's completely unhelpful. It substitutes one cipher for another. But these intellectuals on the Supreme Court pretend that they've made a profound statement. Due process applies only when rights are of such nature that they are included in the conception of due process of law. That's circular. And when the emperor has no clothes, acknowledge it. When the Supreme Court is absurd, let's acknowledge it. And they are here. Alito and the Supreme Court and McDonald try to clean that up some, but they kind of talk about what they need to clean up. In another earlier incorporation case called Twining, Alito says, the court referred to immutable principles of justice which inhere in the very idea of free government which no member of the union may disregard what again completely unhelpful and meaningless Big words that have no practical application. One more example of these old cases that are supposed to help us decide which government restrictions are going to be applied to the states. Alito wrote about another case where the court spoke of rights that are so rooted in the traditions and conscience of our people as to be ranked as fundamental. Again, completely unhelpful. In another case, the court famously said that due process protects those rights that are the very essence of a scheme of ordered liberty an essential to a fair and enlightened system of justice. What gibberish. This is what happens when intellectuals create law. They create gibberish and pass it off as smart. The emperor is naked. And Alito's basically pointing this out without saying it. He's trying to be polite and discussing these unhelpful guides that the Supreme Court has put out there in the past. Alito says, An alternative theory regarding the relationship between the Bill of Rights restrictions and 14th Amendment was championed by Justice Black. This theory held that Section 1 of the 14th Amendment totally incorporated all of the provisions of the Bill of Rights. And I'm down with Black. Once incorporation is accepted, that's what makes sense. Not all of this nonsensical application on a case-by-case basis. Alito goes on, as Justice Black noted, the chief congressional proponent's, of the 14th Amendment espouse the view that the amendment made the Bill of Rights applicable to the states. Nonetheless, Alito continues, the court never has embraced Justice Black's total incorporation theory. But if you're going to incorporate, Justice Black's theory makes sense to me. Every government restriction in the Bill of Restrictions, Bill of Rights, should be given the same respect and treated the same way if one adopts the incorporation doctrine, which the Supreme Court has done. So I'm down with Justice Black on that analysis. Alas, the rest of the Supreme Court is not. and never has been. Alito goes on. The court eventually incorporated almost all of the provision of the Bill of Rights. Only a handful of the Bill of Rights protections remain unincorporated. And in a footnote, the course lists those government restrictions... Mentioned in the Bill of Rights that have not yet been incorporated. And I think this is important to to go over. The footnote points out In addition to the right to keep and bear arms, they decide that in this case, and the Sixth Amendment right to a unanimous verdict, the only rights not fully incorporated are the Third Amendment's protection against quartering of soldiers, hadn't come up, the Fifth Amendment's grand jury indictment requirement, doesn't apply to states, the Seventh Amendment right to a jury trial in civil cases. Doesn't apply to states. And the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on excessive fines. Now, that's changed since 2010 when this case came out, and we talked about it. And that was in Thames versus Indiana. They just decided that in 2019, that the excessive fines prohibition does apply to the states. That's in episode 25 of the law, so check that out. So knowing that, there's still some things they haven't incorporated, but most of them they have to the states. Alito goes on. With this framework in mind, we now turn directly to the question, finally whether the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms is incorporated in the concept of due process. And answering that question, as just explained, Alito says, we must decide whether the right to keep and bear arms is fundamental to our scheme of ordered liberty. Or, as Alito continues, as we have said in a related context, whether this right is deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition. He goes on, our decision in Heller, just two years ago, prior to McDonald, points unmistakably to the answer. Self-defense is a basic right, recognized by many legal systems from ancient times to the present day. And in Heller, we held that individual self-defense is the central component of the Second Amendment right. Court in MacDonald then goes on over a whole lot of what they discussed in Heller, which you can go back and check out the previous episode 36 for that. They do point out a couple of things that I think are worth mentioning. Alita writes, Blackstone's assessment was shared by the American colonists. As we noted in Heller, King George III's attempt to disarm the colonists in the 1760s and 1770s, provoked polemical reactions by Americans invoking their rights as Englishmen to keep arms. Now, much of the dissents are criticisms of Heller itself. The dissents in McDonald are criticizing Heller, which is already decided. Another example of selective concern about precedent, right? Alito goes on, for the majority in McDonald, anti-federalists and federalists alike agreed that the right to bear arms was fundamental to the newly formed system of government. Alito continues with some history about the importance of and the fundamental basic nature of the right to keep and bear arms. He writes... After the Civil War, many of the over 180,000 African Americans who served in the Union Army returned to the states of the old Confederacy, where systemic efforts were made to disarm them and other blacks. Now, the racist history, this is me again, of the anti-gun movement is undeniable. Okay, back to Alita in the majority opinion. The laws of some states formally prohibited African Americans from possessing firearms. For example, a Mississippi law provided that no freedman, free Negro, or mulatto not in the military service of the United States government, and not licensed so to do by the board of police of his or her county, shall keep or carry firearms of any kind or any ammunition, dirt or bowie knife. So not just guns. So the point here is that after the Civil War, these people were being denied their fundamental rights, among them the right to keep and bear arms. The 14th Amendment was intended to make sure states could not infringe on these rights it is the very basis of the 14th Amendment. It's the entire point. McDonald Court goes on to discuss these abuses in detail. A couple of examples of it. They quote the Congressional Record from 1866, where a congressman said, There is one unbroken chain of testimony from all people that are loyal to this country, that the greatest outrages are perpetrated by armed men who go up and down the country searching houses, disarming people, committing outrages of every kind and description. So, I mention that because let me ask you this. How many people would advocate for such an outrage today? Armed men going up and down the streets searching houses, disarming people. How many would advocate for that? Because a lot do. Cory Booker does. He said that. If people aren't going to turn in their guns, he wants the government to go get them. And that won't work out well. Back to Alito. Union army commanders took steps to secure the right of all citizens to keep and bear arms. But the 39th Congress concluded that legislative action was necessary. Its efforts to safeguard the right to keep and bear arms demonstrate that the right was still recognized to be fundamental. The most explicit evidence of Congress' aim appears in Section 14 of the Freedmen's Bureau Act of 1866, which provided that the right to have full and equal benefit of all laws and proceedings concerning personal liberty, personal security, and the acquisition, enjoyment, and disposition of a state, real and personal, including the constitutional right to bear arms, "...shall be secured to and enjoyed by all the citizens without respect to race or color or previous condition of slavery." Section 14 of the Freedmen's Bureau Act of 1866, thus explicitly guaranteed that all citizens, black and white, would have the constitutional right to bear arms. So again, it is fundamental, always been considered fundamental. And beyond that, any attempt to deny people of that historically has been racist. Here's a good quote from history that Alito cites. It's got some good imagery. Senator Samuel Pomeroy, he was a Kansas senator, he was Republican, described three indispensable safeguards of liberty under our form of government. One of these, he said, was the right to keep and bear arms, quoting Pomeroy. Every man should have the right to bear arms for the defense of himself and family and his homestead. And if the cabin door of the freedman former slave, is broken open and the intruder enters for purposes as vile as were known to slavery, then should a well-loaded musket be in the hand of the occupant to send the polluted wretch to another world where his wretchedness will forever remain complete. That's awesome. Amen, Senator Pomeroy. Amen. But the modern anti-gun activists disagree with you. They want that polluted wretch to be able to do whatever he wants to do to that former slave. So Alito gets to the point where he says, in sum, it is clear that the framers and ratifiers of the 14th Amendment counted the right to keep and bear arms among those fundamental rights necessary to our system of ordered Liberty, which is why the founders restricted the federal government from infringing on that right, that right that already existed. Alito goes on for the majority. Despite all this evidence, municipal respondents, the government who wants to ban guns, contend that Congress, in the years immediately following the Civil War, merely sought to outlaw discriminatory measures taken against the freedmen, the former slaves, which it addressed by adopting a non discrimination principle, and that even an outright ban on the possession of firearms was regarded as acceptable so long as it was not done in a discriminatory manner. In other words, you can ban them for everybody, but you can't just ban black folks from having them. But it means you can ban black folks from having them if you also ban white folks from having them. Alito says very politely, quote, This argument is implausible. So this rule about the 14th Amendment just being an anti-discrimination rule, why is that a bad argument? Alito explains, If that were so, then the First Amendment as applied to the states, would not prohibit non-discriminatory abridgements of the rights to freedom of speech or freedom of religion. So they could ban everybody from speaking. They just couldn't say black folks can't speak or white folks can't speak. They could ban everybody. That's the argument that the state is making here. the city of Chicago is making. Alito goes on. The fourth amendment, as applied to the states, would not prohibit all unreasonable searches and seizures, but only discriminatory searches and seizures and so on. We assume that this is not municipal respondents' view. So what they must mean is that the Second Amendment should be singled out for special and specially unfavorable treatment. We reject that suggestion. Alito is being nice. This anti-incorporation argument for the Second Amendment, the argument is a farce. It's a joke. No person with any dignity would make that argument. But many, many people have no dignity. What they have is a hatred of guns. And that hatred, that fear... Is far more important to them than their dignity. Specifically, the Supreme Court says, Alito goes on for the majority. If the 39th Congress had outlawed only those laws that discriminate on the basis of race or previous condition of servitude, African Americans in the South would likely have remained vulnerable to attack by many of their worst abusers the state militia and state peace officers. Alito is correct. And as most social justice warriors believe very correctly, peace officers disproportionately abuse people of color even today. But so many people that are anti-gun and social justice warriors, they're so fearful of guns. They want to deprive those people of color the right to defend themselves. In practical application, they want to give the state and the police another reason to disproportionately negatively affect people of color. So every law is another reason for the police to harass you. So when it comes to fighting state oppression, especially in relation to the second amendment, I'm with Malcolm X. I'm with the Black Panthers, Bobby Seale and Huey Newton. They understood the necessity for the right to keep and bear arms, and they are correct, and so is Justice Alito in this opinion and a majority of the Supreme Court. The Black Panthers were formed specifically by Bobby Seale and Huey Newton and some others specifically to challenge police brutality against the African American community. The need for that challenge still exists, and anti-Second Amendment advocates are in complete denial about that. The 60s radicals progressives believed in guns. Now the progressive cower at the thought, maybe because they are the ones in power and know that they and their white soccer mom privilege can trust the police. The Supreme Court dismisses this anti-discrimination concept of the 14th Amendment and says, It cannot be doubted that the right to bear arms was regarded as a substantive guarantee, not a prohibition that could be ignored so long as the states legislated in an even-handed manner. The court goes on, The municipal respondents' remaining arguments are at war with our central holding in Heller, that the Second Amendment protects a personal right to keep and bear arms for a lawful purposes, most notably for self-defense within the home. But get this argument by the city of Chicago. This is Alito. According to municipal respondents, Chicago and Oak Park, if it is possible to imagine any civilized legal system that does not recognize a particular right, then the Due Process Clause does not make that right binding on the states. Therefore, the municipal respondents continue, because such countries as England, Canada, Australia, Japan, Denmark, Finland, Luxembourg, and New Zealand either ban or severely limit handgun ownership. It must follow that no right to possess such weapons is protected by the 14th Amendment. This line of argument is, Alito says, of course, inconsistent with the long-established standard we apply in incorporation cases. And the present-day implications, Alito continues, of municipal respondents' argument are stunning. For example, many of the rights that our Bill of Rights provides for persons accused of criminal offenses are virtually unique to this country. If our understanding of the right to a jury trial, the right against self-incrimination, and the right to counsel were necessary a- attributes of any civilized society, it would follow that the United States is the only civilized nation in the world. So that's the leader, that's the majority, and it's a BS argument that the cities are making, city of Chicago is making, and they know it. Again, they don't care because guns scare them and they'll argue any nonsense to deprive people of their right to keep and bear arms. The fear of firearms trumps the the city of Chicago's concern about any logical consistency or honesty. These arguments are absurd on their face, as Alito politely points out, but logical consistency and honesty are outweighed against their goal of banning guns. Their intellectual self-respect is dwarfed by their fear. In conclusion, at the end, the majority says, we therefore hold that the due process clause of the 14th Amendment incorporates the Second Amendment right recognized in Heller. The plaintiffs win, the city of Chicago, and the village of Oak Park lose. Freedom wins, the Constitution wins, and the Second Amendment specifically wins because it's applicable to the states. And before I close, I want to mention one line from Scalia's Concurrence, which I love. So he agreed with majority, but he also wrote some more. He wrote about Justice Stevens' dissent. Justice Stevens abhors a system in which, quote, majorities or powerful interest groups always get their way. But Justice Stevens replaces it with a system in which unelected and life tenure judges always get their way good call, Scalia. Way to call him out on that. And Thomas has a lengthy concurrence as well, like we mentioned. He agrees that the 14th Amendment makes the right to keep and bear arms applicable to the states, but he says, I write separately because I believe there's a more straightforward path to this conclusion, one that is more faithful to the 14th Amendment's text and history. The court uses the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, which doesn't really make any sense, but they don't want to overturn those earlier cases. So they use the due process clause and not the Privileges or Immunities Clause, which makes more sense. I agree with Justice Thomas, but the result is the same either way. Thank you for listening, and I'm D.K. Williams, and this has been The Law, Episode 37, McDonald vs. City of Chicago. We're brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. Let me know what you think. Give me some comments, Twitter, at Blue Carp, Facebook, slash Blue Carp, and the Facebook page for this podcast, The Law with D.K. Williams. If you'd like to keep this podcast going, you can donate at paypal.me slash thelawdkwilliams. Freedom is dangerous, my friends. Live dangerously. Until next week,
1: this has been The Law
0: with me, D.K. Williams.